0: Hello and welcome to episode 68 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast, I'm Adam. So how's your week been? Had a good one? I think I've spent more time with my head in my hands than looking up this week. Yeah, it's been one of those. So as I record this on Sunday, I'm taking the attitude of Cambo. You know Cambo? The creator of the excellent True Crime Island podcast. If you haven't listened, do so. It's always an awesome show. And in the spirit of Cambo, to try and relax after my week, I'm sitting back in a deck chair with a beer and telling a story. Okay, so for Cambo in Australia, it's 90 degrees and beautiful, whereas I'm in freezing Essex. But the principle's the same, isn't it? I think. Well, sort of anyway. In today's story, the facts are that we will talk about two murders, but the two crimes could not have been more different. I'm really aware that none of us are far away from losing everything we think matters to us. In fact, I'd suggest we are much closer than many of us realise. In today's case, we see how those people who have lost their way in life a little are especially vulnerable to extreme violence. We also see a recurring theme of this podcast, which is that any murder has a huge ripple effect on the friends and families of those involved. I know it sounds obvious, but I think that sometimes we can underestimate just what an effect a murder can have for generations. Before we begin today's case, I would like to thank all my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new supporters, that's Evan Wyatt, Francis McCarthy and Elle McManus. It's my supporters on Patreon who help me to continue producing this show weekly. So to support the show and listen to the 12 full-length bonus episodes, and other exclusive content, please do head to patreon.com slash UK true crime. Today's case starts with a murder in October 2006, so let's set some context on this time in our lives. In the UK charts, Welcome to the Black Parade by My Chemical Romance were number one, followed by Razorlight with America. In the US, it was Sexy Back by Justin Trousersnake, who I had the pleasure of watching it V a few years ago. On balance, I think I'd rather watch Elbow Live, which is saying something. In the news this month, Charles Carl Roberts murdered five schoolgirls in a shooting incident at an Amish school in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. He then committed suicide. WikiLeaks was launched, created by internet activist Julian Assange. And in the UK, it was a great month for libraries, with on the 26th of October, the Duke of Edinburgh officially opening Arsenal's new stadium. Shh. It was a strange murder. On the 26th of March 2007, at Teesside Crown Court, 41-year-old Alan Taylor, who lived in a Salvation Army hostel in Darlington, denied murder, but he admitted manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. The jury of six men and six women reached the unanimous verdict on the charge of murder after nearly five hours of deliberation. He received a life sentence for a minimum tariff of 13 years. Trial judge Justice Simon said, You've been found guilty of the murder of John Morrison, whom the evidence showed was a gentleman. He met a violent death at your hands. It's plain that drink played a part in this, as well as jealousy and anger. The jury had heard how John Morrison was killed in his flat in Darlington on October 21st the year before. He'd called his pal Alan Taylor at about 5.45am enticing him to come over with cans of strong lager and a bottle of cider to share. Hey, but a cider at almost 6am? What isn't there to like? But by 10am the fun was over and John Morrison was dead. The jury heard that Alan Taylor called police and told the operator, I'm very sorry to say but I've just killed someone. Taylor told police he'd throttled Mr Morrison and then took the belt from his trousers and tightened it around his neck before he strangled him some more. He said he then put a duvet cover over him and said a prayer for him before he fled the flat, bought some more lager and went to a phone box to call police. Taylor gave conflicting accounts about why he killed John Morrison, but it said the killing stemmed from a drunken row about an alleged affair that John had admitted to with an ex-partner of Taylor's. Taylor, who was no angel and had four previous convictions for violence that were kept from the jury, had an extraordinary level of alcohol in his body. Five times the legal drink drive limit at the time of the attack, so that there was no doubt he was beyond tipsy even for the hardened alcoholic that he was. Mr Justice Simon said, In circumstances which are still obscure, since you have told more than one story about what happened, you strangled him using his belt as a ligature. At one point you said you had done it because he had slept with your late partner while you were in prison. Later, you said you thought he probably had not done so. Whether he did or not, whether he said so or not, Or if all of this is just an invention of yours, nothing he said or did remotely justified you killing him. Mr Justice Simon also turned to John Morrison's family, who were in court throughout the case, and praised them for the way they coped during the proceedings. The judge said, They have conducted themselves with dignity, and I wish to express the court's sympathy for the death of a man who is described as a gentle and a kind man. After the verdict, John's sister, Mae Petty, said The sentence Taylor has been given is good, and it is of comfort that he will have to prove that he is no longer a danger to the public before he is ever considered for release. We are all just so relieved it is over, and we do not have to go back another day and have that agonising wait for the jury to come back, because none of us could have handled that. She also revealed how she had gone to the cemetery of her two daughters when the case ended to tell her brother, simply, that justice has been done. But there was one major reason why this terribly sad case, but seemingly unremarkable murder, was covered by a number of newspapers. It was because of the links between Taylor and David Harker, who was, according to the tabloid papers, a so-called cannibal killer who'd been sent to prison in 1998. When Alan Taylor was arrested for murdering John Morrison, he told police he killed his friend so that he could be sent to prison to exact revenge on David Harker, who he claimed had previously murdered his girlfriend. He told detectives, I hope to go to Wakefield Prison. I want Harker next, that bastard Harker. I want him as well. Unfinished business. The jury had heard at Taylor's trial how Julie Patterson, Alan Taylor's girlfriend at the time, was murdered in 1998 by Harker, then aged 24, who was given an indeterminate life sentence the following year. Her body was found in Darlington, without its head and limbs. Harker, who admitted eating part of her leg with pasta, had never disclosed where the remains of her body were hidden. Taylor told police that his life was never the same after seeing his partner's dismembered torso and that he thought about his former girlfriend every day and wondered about what Harker had actually done with her body parts. It tortured him. Even at her grave, he said he couldn't feel peace as so much of her wasn't actually there. So who was this David Harker? And what had led him to kill Alan Taylor's girlfriend, Julie Patterson? David Harker came from the Northeast Chester Street, but after becoming involved in a lot of minor trouble he moved to Darlington in nineteen ninety five. Although a physically fit man, alcoholic Harker spent most of his days clouded by alcohol. A talented musician, Harker didn't have the drive to pursue this interest, and he lived a very simple life, but there was no evidence he was ever involved in serious crime. Then one night in 1998 in Darlington he met Judy Patterson and everything changed. An attractive, blonde and slender 32-year-old, Julie was in a bad place the night she met Harker. She'd suffered a difficult childhood and when she met Harker she had just lost her three children in a bitter custody battle. The upset of this caused her to leave her hometown of Durham for Darlington and also led to an increasing reliance on alcohol and Valium. Her friend June Chamberlain said of her, I got to know Julie three years before she died, first as a lodger, then as a friend. She was bubbly and happy and she liked her drink. When she was depressed she went from extrovert to introvert in the flick of a switch. And just a matter of days after moving to Darlington, Julie met Alan Taylor and the pair had a three-year relationship that lasted until her death. Alan, as we have heard from his trial, was an alcoholic, and after not having much luck with women in his life, was delighted to have such a fun, attractive girlfriend. He said, Me and Julie had our ways of pulling out difficult times, just making each other laugh. We'd had a tough life, some obstacles to go through. It was difficult for us both. I think she'd had a bad life and that's why she ended up in Darlington. Then Julie realised that she was expecting Alan's baby, And the couple saw this as an opportunity to make a new start, hundreds of miles away on the south coast of England in Hastings. But things didn't quite go to plan. And when the baby was born, the couple gave up their baby for adoption. Quite why is unclear. But after that, they took the decision to return to Darlington. When they got there, Julie's depression got worse and she began to withdraw further from Alan and their friends. Alan Taylor said... It was difficult for us both actually, but I didn't show it as much as Julie did. She seemed lost and she gave up. It must have been an awful time for Julie, having her hopes of a new start dashed and for the fourth time being unable to raise her child. Julie's depression meant that she would sometimes lose interest in personal hygiene, but then the next day she would make a real effort and be immaculate in her appearance. She also started to disappear for days at a time without any seeming reason. Alan Taylor was unsure where Julie went during these periods, but on one occasion when Julie had been missing for three weeks and hadn't picked up her Valium or her social security money, Taylor was sure that something had happened to her. These were two things that she would never neglect. On the 29th of April 1998, he reported her absence to police, telling them that he was puzzled where she could be as she left 13 days earlier, on the 16th of April, just wearing her clothes, and only took a small bag with her just containing the absolute basics. The police began to investigate her disappearance, posting details about Julie in the local newspaper, and they soon received a tip-off from a man who thought he recognised Julie, and after recently speaking to a man called David Harker, suggested strongly that police speak with him about Julie's disappearance. Harker was easy to find. He was living in a bail hostel after committing a violent robbery and police quickly located him and took him into custody. Detective Ian Stewart led the interview and he described Harker very well saying He had piercing blue eyes, a shaved head and the tattoos, subhuman and disorder on his forehead. He was a big guy, a bit of a handful. Harker confessed straight away to the murder of Julie or Roxanne as he called her. But as he spent longer in custody, his behaviour began to deteriorate and he began to be twitchy and agitated, telling officers of the voices he heard in his head directing his actions. While he was being quizzed, other officers were sent to Harker's house where they met with a terrible scene. They saw evidence of blood across the floor as if a body had been dragged from the house. The house, well, the bedsit itself was eerie, Even for experienced officers with deep puddles of blood soaked into the floor and the following slogans on the wall I have lost the will to live, nothing more for me to give and born again with snake's eyes, becoming God's size. Officers found Julie's belongings including her trainers and tracksuit bottoms so there was no doubt that she'd been seriously injured here. And a week later police found Julie's torso in a plastic bag in undergrowth a mile or so from the house. After this grim discovery, detectives were able to charge Harker with murder, but they almost didn't want to know the exact details of what had happened to Julie during those horrible final moments. But they quickly pieced together what had happened, which was made easier by the fact that Harker had boasted about Julie's murder to over 25 people. He'd met Julie in a local pub the evening she left Alan Taylor. Though not my cup of tea, Harker could be seen by some as handsome and could be good company. That night, after a number of drinks together, Julie agreed to go home with Harker. Nothing unusual about that. It happens in bars near you and me every day of the week. But Julie could not have any indication of the repercussions of this decision. Back at his place, the pair began to have sex, but Harker became bored by this and decided that this was the time he would find out just what it felt like to kill someone, and he strangled Julie of her own tights. Wrapping the tights tightly around her throat, he increased the pressure and squeezed harder and harder until her breathing became shallow and then all resistance stopped from Julie's lifeless body. This aroused Harker, who had sex with Julie's corpse, before he dismembered her body, removing flesh from her thigh and mixing it with cheese and garlic to make a spaghetti carbonara. He placed the torso into a bin bag and dumped it on nearby wasteland. But despite detectives searching through 20,000 tonnes of rubbish in a nearby tip and in rivers and ponds and local parks, her head and limbs were never found, despite pleas from her family to be allowed to give her a proper funeral. At Teesside Crown Court, David Harker pleaded guilty to manslaughter, on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Paul Worsley, prosecuting, said that Harker was obsessed with serial killers and avidly read any book or viewed any programme on the subject. He told friends his ambition was to be Britain's most notorious serial killer. Not the first time we've heard that on this podcast. Harker had been convicted of two violent assaults when he was 16, including kicking a dog to death. But he showed no remorse, and showed nothing but contempt for the police and Julie, arguing that he was the victim, not her. He said, I'm not evil, I'm a monster. The detectives who interviewed me were too stupid to see just who I was. When asked whether he'd been influenced by characters such as Hannibal Lecter in The Silence of the Lambs, he replied, People like me don't come from them films. Them films come from people like me. Tests had showed that Harker was classed in the top 4% of the most disturbed psychopaths. He'd boasted of committing two other murders, but police found no evidence to support his claims. Aidan Maron QC Defending said, The defendant is a grossly disturbed individual. He is an intense and very dangerous psychopath. Sentencing him, Mr Justice Bennett said he was an evil and extremely dangerous person. You killed her in the most terrible circumstances and dismembered her body. You glorified in her death and the manner of her death. I have no doubt that given the slightest opportunity that you would kill again. Harker replied, Thank you, after hearing the judge's recommendation that he serve at least 14 years before parole be considered. The judge added that if Harker were released, he would be on licence permanently. Surely he'll never be released, right? Superintendent Barry Pertz, who led the investigation, was sure that Harker killed her for pleasure, he said. Harker has told friends and psychiatrists that he killed her. He also said he'd eaten part of her thigh, fried it and had eaten it with pasta and cheese. He has told over 25 people what he has done because of the grisly nature of what he was saying. They did not believe him. They thought he was fantasising. But unfortunately he was not. She was vulnerable and childlike, and Harker took advantage of that. Harker has never helped with our inquiries at all, but he has spoken to other people, and we believe that she was murdered by strangulation in his flat in Darlington. Three sites in that flat showed signs of dismemberment having taken place. There were other victims of the crime, including Judy's children. Her son Freddie was just seven when his mum was killed. He got into a lot of trouble locally and he's picked up a number of convictions for violence. His grandma told the local newspaper He's been drinking a lot and must have gone out of control. He's never talked about what happened, he keeps it to himself. I do not know if that is where his problems come from. Maybe it would help if he talked about it. She said that her grandson's father, also called Freddie, took his own life three years ago troubled by what had happened and this had added to the young man's troubled upbringing. And Julie's daughter was a schoolgirl watching TV when a news presenter revealed that a cannibal killer had murdered and eaten her mum. After news of another horrifying cannibal attack in Bradford a few years ago, Sarah told the People newspaper, Last week, all the pain came rushing back, it made me feel sick. I've never been able to recover properly because only part of my mum's body has been found. My heart goes out to the families of the latest victims. This story about Bradford has brought back all the pain I felt about mum. When I visit her grave, it just makes me think about where the rest of her body might be. I live in the hope that one day we will be able to have a proper funeral. While I know that the pain will never go away, I think it would help. I've no idea how to tell my three daughters that their grandma was murdered and eaten by a cannibal. The last time Sarah saw her mum was when Julie and her boyfriend Alan Taylor took her on a day trip to Durham, just days before Julie went missing. And Sarah revealed that initially she had no idea what had happened to her mum, saying, Grandad came into the kitchen and said, Sarah, your mum wasn't very well, she's died of cancer. I was hysterical. I locked myself in the bathroom and cried my heart out. I was too young to understand about cancer, but it seemed so sudden. So Sarah decided to go and stay with a a foster carer. And when she arrived, she was told not to watch the TV. But Sarah told the people, I knew something was up. And being a young kid, I immediately turned on the TV. The news was full of reports about the cannibal killer. And there on the screen was his victim, my mum. I went hysterical. There is no other way of dealing with something as awful as that. I was only 11, but I knew what it meant. And I had nightmares. Afterwards, Sarah had counselling, she said. We would talk about everything and I would make clay models of mum's murderer and throw them at the wall. It helped me to vent my anger. Sarah also had to deal with everyone knowing the gruesome details. I had to resist googling mum's name. There were so many awful things on the internet. On a school trip to France, one boy even said that some of the weird French food that we were eating was my mum. It was such a nasty thing to say. I was haunted by thoughts of what had happened to her. Like the Bradford victims, my mum had a dysfunctional life. But that doesn't mean she wasn't loved or deserved what happened. Four years after the murder, Sarah gave birth to her first daughter at the age of 15. She said, I was very young to be a mum, but I think it saved me. Having my daughter gave me a reason to be strong. There had been times when I'd felt like ending it all, but now I had to be there for my daughter. But even now, she says, she's still haunted by nightmares and takes antidepressants for anxiety. I try not to imagine mum's last moments, the pain and fear she must have felt. I'm scared to go out on my own, and I'm terrified of my daughter being harmed. I can't watch horror films. I can't even eat pasta. The thought makes me sick. Sarah added finally, I hope that mum will be proud of the way I have not let what happened consume me. I've got my mum's name tattooed on my back. I want to remember her, not how she died. Powerful stuff, isn't it? We started this episode with the murder of John Morrison by Julie's partner, Alan Taylor. So what happened to him? Alan Taylor never got his wish to share a cell with David Harker. In June 2007, aged just 41, he was found hanging in his prison cell. Julie's death at the hands of David Harker in 1998 left Taylor a broken man. Although a heavy drinker before, it was Judy's death that led him to abuse alcohol even further. He was so tormented that he never gave up looking for her head and her arms, and he once confessed to the Northern Echo paper that he carried a spade with him around to dig up land in the hope of one day finding it. Just how sad. It can be argued that Alan Taylor was another victim of David Harker. So what do you make of what we've heard today? I feel for Julie and her family of course after hearing her daughter Sarah and hearing what's happening to her son Freddie you can't not feel for them it just must be awful to try and cope with that. And for Julie's murder it was just terribly bad luck that she happened to cross paths with the worst possible person she could have met in Darlington that night and the terrible consequences that followed. As I said at the very beginning, on the fringes of society, suffering from addictions, life is incredibly hard. And this was the life being led by John Morrison, Alan Taylor and Julie, as well to an extent David Harker. As we all know, the differences between those able to sustain a so-called normal life and those suffering to hold it together on the edges of society are getting wider and wider. As for Harker, well. What is there to say? I've heard it argued that he didn't eat any of Julie at all. It was just another part of him trying to create this myth of importance for a first-class loser. It wouldn't surprise me at all, would it you? Harker still hasn't revealed where the rest of Julie's remains are. And for a while he played a sick game with the local newspaper, writing rhymes giving clues about where police could find her. He relishes the attention. Before he was arrested, when he wasn't hanging out with other drunks, he would spend time with children much younger than him showing off. He would stand bare-chested and call himself the Devil Man and tell these children stories of evil and Satanism. One recalls, he was kind of funny. We never took him seriously until we found out what he did to Julie. It's so sad, isn't it, that a loser such as Harker can cause so much damage to so many people. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please do join our Facebook group. There are now over 900 members and lots of interesting discussion. It's not just about podcasts or the podcast episodes you listen to, but any aspect at all of UK true crime. And you'll be made very welcome. And to support the show and to allow me to keep producing it weekly, please head to Patreon, N.com slash UK true crime that's patreon.com slash UK true crime you'll find 12 bonus episodes and other exclusive content there so that's all from me for now so until next week it's cheerio and remember be kind and stay classy